I am Hattie West, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show of policy analysis and international affairs. In this episode, I sit with Dr. Michael Nanulak to explore the role of international institutions in addressing climate challenges and coordinating environmental action, as well as discuss his recent publication on the change in global environmental politics. Dr. Michael Manulak is an assistant professor of international affairs, diplomacy, and foreign policy at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, known as NIPSIA. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Toronto, his MA from NIPSIA at Carleton University, and earned a PhD in international relations from the University of Oxford. His research focuses on international organizations, multilateral diplomacy, Canadian foreign policy, global environmental politics, and non-proliferation. His recent published book titled Change in Global Environmental Politics, Temporal Focal Points and the Reform of International Institutions was published in May 2022 with Cambridge University Press. Being an alumnus of the Government of Canada's Recruitment of Policy Leaders program, he served mainly within the Department of National Defense. In government, he represented Canada in international proliferation security negotiations, supported the National Security Review of Foreign Investments, and composed cabinet documents within the National Defense's Cabinet Liaison Bureau. He is a fellow at the Balsali School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo, and at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He also serves on the External Advisory Board of the Canadian Foreign Service Institute, providing advice on Canada's diplomatic training priorities. Welcome to the show, Dr. Manuela. Good to have you here. Great to be with you, Hadi. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the inter interviewer IFRS Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, or Carleton University. Great to have you again with us, Dr. Manulak. Let me kick this conversation off by congratulating you on your recent publication. What a wonderful piece of work. Um, how does life feel following a significant publication like this one? Oh, life is uh, is good. Um, been uh, pretty active and doing some writing and and uh, around the book and and raising, uh, I guess, uh, getting the word out about some of the major ideas. It's been, um, it was a uh, a product of my doctoral research at Oxford, and then um, effectively gathered dust for five years while I was in government, and then. Uh, when I returned to Nipsia as uh, as a professor, I uh, I came back to it, uh, rewrote more than half of it um, uh, for the purposes of the book. Um, some of it gained, um, I guess, additional perspective from my time in government. Uh, I got to deepen the research in a few areas, add a new chapter, revise heavily, and completely rewrite other chapters. But um, it's it's been uh, it's been a long long term project, and so it's it's wonderful to see it out. Perfect. So let us dive in to our conversation, your publication discusses the role of international institutions with regards to environmental policy and politics. Um, now, I have a, a generalization or you want to call it a stereotype that people often make a statement. They say 
um, that international organizations or institutions are ineffective and that their mandates are just formalities. Do you agree or dis disagree with this statement and why? I disagree with it. Uh, I'm a, uh, my research focuses on international organizations. I just published a book uh, on the subject, so uh, so my my perspective on the issue probably won't be surprising. Um, I think um, that we see widespread uh, cooperation uh, among states using international institutions and organizations for a reason. If they weren't useful, this simply wouldn't be the case. Um, this institutions allow states to achieve things that they couldn't achieve on their own. Uh, they couldn't achieve through a decentralized set of bilateral relations, for example. And this is why states set these institutions up. They allow for verification of international agreements, for example, in the arms control space uh, that, that allow states to, uh, to reduce their, their level of armaments. Uh, they provide dispute resolution mechanisms that allow trade agreements to function. Um, and then they reach to all kinds of aspects of, of everyday life that uh, that institutions, whether it's communications or telecommunications, that uh, that we take for granted, but are facilitated seamlessly at the international level by these organizations. And so um, I think that there's a sense out there among some uh, quite prominently in the US, uh, uh, but in other places as well, that cooperation within international organizations is uh, somehow altruism or charity at the international level. Um, but this is just uh, simply false. States create institutions to pursue their own interests in concrete areas that allow governments to access international institutions to make the lives of their citizens uh, better in very concrete ways. And so and international institutions uh, do that. Um, this isn't to say that international organizations don't face challenges. This isn't to say that uh, that we could use the existing set of institutions that we have better. Uh, but it is quite clear that international organizations matter. Perfect. I could tell how much you love the environment from the sound of the birds around you, which is really beautiful. <laughs> Dr. Manielak, what made you interested in temporal focal points in particular and, and both their relevance and application to international environmental governance? Yeah, this is this is a good question. And temporal focal points really are, uh, in many ways, one of the big takeaways or one of the big theoretical contributions of, of the book uh, that's that's just come out. And these are conspicuous moments in time that allow for states uh, to um, reach a convergence of expectation. That's just a fancy way of saying actors expect others to um, to behave in a certain way at a certain moment in time. Um, and so uh, I became interested in, in this concept or I developed this concept uh, as I was uh, looking at a, a puzzling feature of uh, the uh, record of change within institutions in the environment sphere. And what I saw was this intermittent, this occasional clustering of agreements in, in global environmental politics. Uh, in, in particular, I saw two two-year phases of institutional hyperactivity in which governments concluded uh, more than a third of uh, multilateral environmental agreements. That's a huge proportion of the total number of agreements within two very uh, you know narrow slices of time. Um, in uh, in and around the 1972 Stockholm Conference, we get the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands, uh, we get the London Dumping Convention, we get the Marine Pollution Convention, we get the World Heritage Convention, and we get the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species, Flora and Fauna CITES. Um, we also get in, in 1972 the creation of the UN Environment Program um, and, and a number of developments in international environmental law. And then two decades later, around the Rio Summit, we get the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Convention on Biological uh, 
biological diversity, the desertification convention, we see a set of forest principles, we see changes to um, the, uh, the global environmental facility, uh, as well as um, the, uh, the creation of the uh, Commission on Sustainable Development. And so we get these huge changes all clustered in these short moments in time. Um, and um, it beca I became interested in why this was the case. How are we getting this? Because this couldn't be just a random occurrence. If, if, if um, cooperation was being driven just by developments in the set of cooperation problems, then we would expect these to be built upon, say, a problem arises in, with wetlands, then we develop a convention around wetlands, say marine pollution becomes a bigger problem because of some change in industrial activity, then we would expect maybe at, at another point in time, we get a convention around that. But instead, we're seeing all of these state uh, states getting together to address these issues in a really clustered way. Um, and so this is where uh, the concept of uh, temporal focal points uh, came up. I started to play around with that idea one Sunday afternoon in an empty classroom at Carleton um, and uh, in Tory building as it happens. Um, and uh, I started to, uh, to play around with this idea uh, in which there might be these moments in time um, where states expect others to behave in a certain way. And that leads to them to make the political, major political and analytical investments to change their bargaining behavior uh, in relation to that time frame and to conclude a whole set of agreements in a clustered way. Um, and so, uh, so I studied the, the way that states are able to coordinate their activities at certain moments in time and their expectations at certain moments in time uh, to facilitate large scale institutional change. Sweet. Um, at IFRS Canada, we always like to analyze things or explore things from a Canadian uh, point of view. And, and on that, I'll, I'll ask you, where do you see Canada's role in international environmental institutions? How can we help catalyze an opportune time for global environmental politics to change in ways that address coordination challenges? Yeah, Canada has has traditionally been a real leader, uh, a real architect in global environmental governments and governance. We were probably one of the top two or three most influential actors at the 1972 Stockholm Conference, which is really the birth of multilateral environmentalism. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of that conference. Uh, we introduced a set of legal principles that sought to um, uh, that sought to further the development of uh, environmental law, international environmental law. Uh, some of these principles have been taken up in the uh, current uh, discussions or the discussions that have been ongoing on uh, a potential global pact on the environment uh, that, that might provide a, a kind of legal foundation for uh, international cooperation in the environment sphere. Um, Canada was a, an original proponent of what came the Brunt, became the Brundtland Commission in the early 1980s and then the, the Brundtland Report released in 1987. Uh, Canada hosted, of course, the pivotal conference that led to the Montreal Protocol uh, on uh, uh, CFCs. Uh, and the um, depletion of the ozone layer, the biodiversity, the Convention on Biodiversity Secretariat is hosted in Montreal, a recognition of Canada's leadership in this space. We hosted the Toronto Conference, which was one of the pivotal meetings on, on climate change. So Canada really has a record uh, in the environmental space as, as, as a leader. Um, in recent years, it's faced some challenges, I would say, particularly uh, there are uh, tackling climate change presents some real uh, important challenges in terms of the oil sector in Canada that, uh, that perhaps has 
has slowed Canadian leadership, but Canada has traditionally been one of the at the forefront of these. And I think uh, one of the reasons, or two of the reasons, why Canada has been is um, we have we're you know, the second largest country in the world. We have many. Uh, there's a lot of environment in Canada, um, and we have large coastlines that have uh, that have pushed forward. So uh, many of these issues are actually highly relevant. And many of the the technical and cooperative and scientific endeavors pursued at the international level really are of concrete benefit to Canada. Um, and so. Um, uh, so there's that aspect. The other piece of the puzzle is that uh, we have a, a big neighbor to the south. And uh, so Canada has traditionally sought to manage an asymmetrical bilateral relationship with the United States via multilateral institutions. And uh, we sought to do this at the 1972 Stockholm Conference. We sought to do this over the longer run on issues of acid rain uh, that uh, that came to a head in the 1980s. Uh, and so there, there really has been, um, uh, th these have really motivated Canada to be a leader and a player in this space. Um, I think looking forward, uh, there are many opportunities for Canada to, to play a leading role. I'll just talk about one of them. Uh, it recently came out, I think it was just last week, that Canada would be hosting the second stage of COP15 uh, for the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity, and this is going to be hosted this December in Montreal. Um, this is uh, We're facing a real crisis at the international level on biodiversity. There are uh, more than a million species in danger of, uh, of extinction, facing extinction globally. Um, these uh, uh, the real progress in, in terms of a global biodiversity framework, which are which is currently under negotiations, uh, can make a real uh, real impact, including in the, the broader space uh, in uh, promoting nature-based solutions at the international level that have real implications also for climate change. Um, and so, there's I think uh, it's it's uh, a fantastic step forward that Canada has has decided to to um, uh, to host this meeting. Um, and um, the uh, I think Canada can play a major role that uh, China is going to continue to 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 be the president of, of this meeting, but Canada is going to host it. And so there's an opportunity, I think, to try to ensure that uh, the heads of government, heads of state uh, turn up to to this biodiversity conference and Canada can play a lead role in trying to push for good, strong representation at the meeting at the, the highest levels of government. Um, there's also a real imperative to mobilize significant financing, uh, particularly to to uh, support developing countries in uh, meeting some of the goals of the biodiversity framework. And, and I think Canada can play a lead role in trying to uh, drum up support uh, so that these issues are taken seriously at the international level. Thank you, Professor. Um, we'll, we'll expand our exploration or discussion into a broader uh, perspective globally. Um, based on your research and understanding of Canada's position on environmental priorities, which we just discussed in our previous question, which countries do you see aligning with Canada on addressing international environmental issues? Yeah, Canada works uh, closely with with a number of uh, countries on environmental issues. Um, we're part in, in climate negotiations of a coalition called the Umbrella Group, about 10 or 12 countries that that uh, collaborate and, and try to uh, build common positions in climate negotiations. Uh, we're also, uh, of course, very closely aligned in our policies uh, through through other institutions, the OECD, the G7, with uh, with many uh, leading European actors. Uh, there's a lot of um, collaboration with with Germany, for example, on on these issues, where there, I think Canada and Germany see eye to eye on many of them. So there are many um, traditional partners. 
Um, I think we need to continue to uh, expand and deepen our ties with other countries. These are, you know, uh, I think a lot of the the, act, the countries that I named so far are uh, some of Canada's traditional partners, but I think there's there's a real need to broaden that out uh, on uh, a bilateral level with uh, with countries in, in the hemisphere, with countries in Africa, with countries in uh, in South Asia, where where we need to uh, deepen our ties and our collaboration on these issues. I think there's a real need to use some of the other multilateral forum, which uh, Canada as a member, um, think about the Commonwealth, La Francophonie and some others, where we can um, kind of thicken our ties with, with some of these countries and really use them as vehicles to further collaboration and cooperation on these issues. Um, I think our, um, and I think we're doing some of this um, and, and uh, we're also engaging non-state actors, but we're doing some of this broadening out of our linkages uh, with these countries. But um, but I think there's, there's a need for a bit of a, a vision. I think that there's a a bit of a broader malaise in our foreign policy, a bit of a, a lack of direction as to how we can engage with these countries, how um, we can engage with some of the countries in Africa, some of the countries in Latin America. What is the purpose of our, what are we trying to achieve in our relations with these countries um, and develop really genuine partnerships. And I think I think there's, there is a need for uh, a, a bigger revisioning of our of our foreign policy and i think that, that would uh, aid our ability to um uh, to tackle some of these issues that, uh, that our ability to collaborate in global environmental governance would be benefited more generally by an improvement and a deepening and a thickening of our relations with uh, with a broader set of countries outside of our traditional uh, set of partners at the international level so what geopolitical trends do you predict will impact global environmental governance in the future yeah, I think the big one is is increasing great power competition and polarization at the international level. This has really been uh, accelerated by uh, Russia's uh, aggression in Ukraine, uh, but this is this has of course been a longer term longer term trend, particularly in terms of competition with China. Um, and uh, I think that we are uh, there's a real risk, and I think we are definitely moving into uh, into an issue into a world that is increasingly polarized. We talk fairly casually about uh, the risks. Of a new cold war uh, in the in the international sphere, um, and um, we're seeing that. You know, we're seeing increased cooperation in NATO on our end. We're seeing tighter ties between China uh, with with certain other countries, and and I think we're we're definitely moving into that sphere. Um, but we also have a set of problems uh, that can only be addressed addressed at the global level. They can't be addressed in in regional organizations or uh, among groups of, of of democracies, for example, uh, where uh, these issues climate change, pandemics, for example, need a truly global response. Local, national, regional responses are important, but they are definitely inadequate to the challenge. And so um, I think we need to, uh, you know, to put climate front and center. Uh, and here uh, we need, uh, I think, a prerequisite to us addressing this issue is, uh, is better cooperation between the United States and China in furthering their shared interests on these issues. Um, I think from from a Canadian perspective, a return and in a global perspective, a return to great power competition, a return to some version of the Cold War is not in anyone's interest. It's definitely not in Canada's interest. And uh, I think we are now entering a crucial decade in terms of tackling climate change. I think the uh, effects of climate already irreparable. Uh, are going to be increasingly so if, if we cannot take action in the next decade on this issue. And so um, this geopolitical trend toward great power competition is coming at exactly the wrong time. Uh, and all countries, including Canada, 
especially Canada perhaps, have an interest in trying to ensure that we are not sleepwalking into, uh, into some period of great polarization and division where these countries where the big powers um, are not able to cooperate and collaborate uh, in furthering shared interests on issues like climate change. Um, and so um, it is, it is uh, absolutely uh, should be a focus. Um, I mentioned already in this interview, the biodiversity conference, the fact that China, which was originally going to host the meeting that has now moved to Montreal, is going to continue to be the president of uh, perhaps furthering uh, cooperation, collaboration, productive collaboration among Canada as the coast country and China as the president could, could perhaps create uh, a framework for collaboration on these issues where shared interests are, are concerned um, and uh, building up points of connection and interface. Professor Manilak, I don't think it's possible to talk about environmental issues and not uh, explore or, or note indigenous issues related to this. We know that global environmental issues can affect indigenous peoples and communities and their lands. How can international environmental institutions prioritize these communities to ensure that they are not affected by environmental issues that are currently occurring? Yeah, that's 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 a big issue, and and uh, the short answer is there's there's probably no way to ensure that they're not affected by by these because we're all affected by by these issues. Environmental issues are indigenous issues, and um, and so this is uh, this is uh, uh, really important. And I think we need to do a much better job in our foreign policy, more generally, our environmental policy, more generally, in ensuring that indigenous uh, communities have a real influence on these things. That these perspectives are uh, filtered into into the process and shape uh, Canadian policy at the at the international level. Uh, indeed, climate change is, is impacting the livelihoods and the ways of life of many uh, Indigenous communities, including in Canada, um, in, in negative ways. And so, um, so there needs to be, uh, I think, uh, a broader effort to ensure that these perspectives are are, um, uh, are uh, reflected, are brought into the picture. Uh, I know that the government has uh, recently just released a, an effort to uh, to collaborate uh, more with Indigenous communities in the uh, preservation of species at risk, which are also affecting the, the livelihoods of many uh, Indigenous and Aboriginal communities. Uh, but we need these voices finding expression within the uh, global biodiversity framework uh, being negotiated and Canada needs to play uh, an active role in ensuring that uh, that these perspectives are brought into the picture and that we understand the implications of climate change and biodiversity loss of the triple planetary crisis uh, in, um, in, in the lives of, uh, of Aboriginal communities, of, of Indigenous communities in Canada, uh, and ensure that, um, that, we, uh, that these interests are, uh, are protected and, and uh, serve as, uh, and are fundamental to Canada's uh, position within these global negotiations. Thank you. Now we're talking about solutions and frameworks. And, and my question is, after these solutions and frameworks are devised by international environmental institutions, how come, uh, sorry, how can these organizations ensure that developing countries and or fragile states are equally prioritizing them as developed countries? Yeah, um, we know that uh, that developing countries are being profoundly affected by by climate change. These are some of the countries that have the least capacity to, uh, uh, in fragile states, uh, have the least capacity to adapt to uh, the impacts of climate change. 
Um, just this, this past February of this year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released uh, within the context of its sixth assessment report, uh, the findings of Working Group 2 on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. And one of the findings was that uh, between 3.3 and 3.6 billion people are already vulnerable to climate change. That's 40% of the world's population. And most of those people uh, live within developing countries. Um, and many of those people, many of those countries, I, I should add, had very little role actually in creating the current climate crisis. Take the countries in Africa, I think combined, they've contributed about 3% of global emissions. Uh, yet they are uh, disproportionately experiencing the impact of climate change, whether it's droughts, floods, food insecurity. Uh, so some of these uh, some of these impacts are are being felt disproportionately by uh, by the people who have had the least effect or least impact on on global climatic systems. Um, so I think we need to uh, we need to address this. This is, you know, we have to call a spade a spade here. This is a profound injustice uh, and the international community, Canada included, has a responsibility to address these issues and address them in a, in a full, you know, in a serious way. Um, clearly, uh, we have to up our commitments on climate. We need to um, uh, meet our mitigation targets. We've, we've set fairly ambitious targets. We can continue to set more ambitious tar targets, but now it's time to walk the walk instead of talking the talk and really uh, implement the commitments that we've made at the international level toward net zero um, by uh, by mid-century. And so uh, we need to do that. We need to meet and exceed at the international level, the $100 billion uh, commitment of financing, which we've still, uh, when I say we, I mean the international community still has found, uh, has somehow found it uh, not possible yet to, to meet, though they're starting to approach it uh, on an annual basis in terms of financing to support um, developing countries. Uh, we need to do much more on adaptation. Um, we have a, there's a moral imperative to to help these countries, these highly vulnerable and fragile countries, in adapting to the effects, to the worst effects of climate change. We need to do this simultaneously. This isn't a matter of curtailing mitigation to support adaptation. We got to do both on, of these things at the same time uh, to meet the challenge that that many that our country, you know, that Canada and other developed countries uh, contributed to making. Uh, very significantly. Um, and then we need to take seriously, there's been increasing conversation of a loss and damage facility at COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, we need to take seriously these uh, the uh, the need to to consider these issues as well. Uh, I know that there's there's a lot of uncertainty, but uh, but there is a, a a profound international and moral imperative um, to uh, to tackle this issue in a way that um, that really um, helps protect the world's most vulnerable and world's most fragile states. But in your opinion, what's the current situation? I mean, what are the biggest challenges being faced or facing the United Nations in pursuing sustainable development in the environmental field? What What is currently being done to overcome these challenges and who are the major stakeholders in your opinion? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest challenges are political and institutional. Politically, the divisions of the world that I spoke of earlier, the divisions between the United States and China, the divisions caused uh, already divisions with Russia, but but divisions have been aggravated since uh, since February uh, with uh, with Russia. The di uh, division in the international system is making it very hard to uh, to advance the sustainable the environmental agenda and the sustainable development more generally. Uh, we've seen uh, with the pandemic as well. Uh, the uh, real progress has has halted on implementing the 2030 uh, 2030 agenda and advancing the sustainable development goals. Uh, many reports have have looked at how um, uh, how I guess progress has started to retreat in in achieving those goals. Um, and so uh, those political divisions are are very important, and they're limiting our ability to 
um, uh, to tackle uh, the, uh, these priorities in the sustainable development and environment field. Uh, institutionally, I think there are, there are also challenges. I mean, there are many institutions. One of the reasons I wrote the book is that um, this issue of institutional change really is important at the international level. We're dealing with a set of institutions in many cases that were created 75 years ago, um, uh, and they were created for a very different world. Uh, but they've, despite being creaky, um, there's very uh, little uh, capacity to update these institutions, to modernize them, uh, to make them more networked and to make them more engaged with the challenges and the realities of, of 21st century global governance. And so um, there, there really is a need to, uh, to update and upgrade these, these institutions to make them more effective. Um, but again, that, that in, those institutional challenges that are limiting progress on achieving sustainable development are also limited by the political challenges that make uh, improving and strengthening the institutional mechanisms available, um, uh, they make that impossible because uh, because of the politics surrounding these. Um, and, and this is really, uh, really hard. It becomes a real challenge to address, for example, the broader fragmentation in the environment field within the United Nations uh, system, the uh, fragmentation in the broader sustainable development enterprise. Um, and so, um, uh, so I think that there are uh, some real challenges there. Uh, in terms of opportunities that, that, that could be presenting themselves, um, the Secretary General has uh, released a report just this past fall in 2021, um, our common agenda. Uh, one of the ideas within that report is the hosting of a summit of the future in the fall 2023 uh, UN General Assembly session along the high, along the high week, um, uh, the, the high level week. Uh, within the the general assembly session and and um, there are some real real ideas there to to strengthen and to make more networked the united nations um, one idea for example is is to transform the now moribund uh, trusteeship council it's been it hasn't hasn't met since 1994 and to transfer it into a, a trusteeship organization for addressing issues of the global commons and of, of sustainable development that would really up the institutional um, capacity, uh, potentially, uh, the institutional capacity to address many of these issues. Um, I think states need to take these issues carefully. They need to really work together to modernize the institutions and use that modernization and that broader effort to, to overcome some of the political challenges that are hindering uh, opportunities or hindering the ability of states to, uh, to upgrade and to modernize the, the current institutional structures of the UN system. An interesting point to Dr. Manulak, but on a, on a more specific uh, note, it is clear that climate change more significantly affects certain geographic areas in the world. For instance, the Middle East region has been identified as the most water-stressed region on the planet, being home to just 1% of freshwater resources, but 5% of the world's population. What kind of reforms are needed by the entirety of the international community to mitigate the effects of climate change on the hardest struck regions? And what role, in your opinion, can Western countries play to help mitigate the near-term stresses facing regions like the Sub-Saharan Africa or the MENA regions? Thanks. Uh, I think, I think, some of some of the answers and some of what I've 
uh, I've said previously, but I'd, I'd really like to underscore, and if you can't tell by the way that I speak about these issues, I, I, I do think that they're very urgent. Uh, and I'd like to underscore that urgency of addressing this. We are in the critical decade in addressing many of these global environmental challenges. If we don't tackle climate change in the next in the next decade, um, this issue is going to um, the the uh, lives and livelihoods of future generations are going to be uh, damaged uh, really irreparably. Um, and so we really need to take uh, we need to really um, take this issue even more seriously than we do currently. I'm, there's a kind of grab you by the lapels quality of, of what I'm trying to say here. These issues are really, really important. We need to uh, to mitigate and we need to start adapting uh, climate uh, on, on to address these climate issues, to address the types of uh, water stressed, uh, you know, the, the water stressed regions of the world, such as the Middle East and other places that are highly vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Um, uh, one one thing you you asked about about potential solutions. One I'm going to have a paper coming out soon, uh, advocating for the a super COP, a super conference of the parties within the UN, uh, within the framework of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, where uh, states will uh, come together to to seek to overcome some of the collective action problems. I think that that plague the the current system of annual COPs. Um, I think that that system. Has, um, is very good at creating steady progress toward increasing commitments. Um, but um, we are in the need of, uh, in the words of, of Christiana Figueres, the uh, former um, executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, we've seen steady progress, but but what we really need is a sprint at this point. And, and uh, uh, by by advocating that and essentially seeking to crystallize a temporal focal point in the in the context of global climate governance, um, the hope is that that uh, states can can uh, uh, can take a really significant step in strengthening the institutions and the cooperative mechanisms that are needed to uh, to to tackle these issues in a in 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 a way that's consistent with the science in a way that's consistent with the scale of the problem that we are trying to tackle as an international community. Well, I'm looking forward to reading this article, and and now, and now that you spoke about your upcoming work, um, is there a particular aspect of your research that you find to be particularly compelling or surprising? And what are some implications for future research in, in terms of global environmental politics and international institutions? Um, I'll start with the, the surprising aspect of it. I, I mentioned that the, the book uh, started off as my doctoral dissertation uh, at Oxford and, and I wrote it uh, and then I, I entered government and I spent five years in government. I think one of the things um, that, that I found surprising about, about it was actually how, how well it fit with my experience in government, how um, the kinds of inertia that I observed in, in following uh, the negotiations of global environmental governance over, over a roughly 50 year period, how um, that, that sort of um, inertia that, that, that I observed for, as an outsider is actually really consistent with the experience in government, how some issues become prioritized at certain points in time, and then they kind of just coast along until they become they become a point of focus again. Um, and those points of focus are usually externally driven. Uh, they're things outside of 
government that force governments to uh, to take action on issues um and and so um i think i was um i obviously as when you're doing research you try to create something that is realistic as possible but when i was in government i was seeing temporal focal points all over the place um and so it led me um in uh to uh, first of all to to believe in the research even more than i did before uh but then also it it fed into my understanding that fed into my rewrite of the book and so my experience in government uh i think comes through in the different in the pages of the way that i analyze the negotiations and the way that i theorize uh, temporal focal points uh, uh, because i rewrote so much of it coming back but but um i was surprised at how well it fit with my with my experience in 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 the, in the public sector um in terms of what i found compelling i think um i i'm an ir scholar now i i suppose i'm a political scientist but my my background is actually in history and and um i'm i'm happiest and enjoying the research more when i'm sifting through archival documents and indeed the book is based on research from you know eight archives in five countries uh, so a really really substantial empirical side um, and and a real investment in in the depth and the texture of these negotiations and getting to know the personalities and sitting down with dozens of those people that were involved in the negotiations uh, interviewing them getting information but also getting a sense of the the texture and the politics of of these of these discussions um, had conversations with people like Morris Strong, who was the um, the um, uh, first executive director of UNEP, but also the secretary general of the 1972 Stockholm Conference and the 92 Rio Earth Summit. I uh, chatted with uh, Gru Harlan Brundtland and Elizabeth Dowdswell and all of these people that were pivotal actors. Um, and so um, I think uh, the, the compelling part, the part that I found compelling is not just the theoretical side, which I think tends to get a lot of the, uh, the focus of the book, but it's also the very rich and entertaining politics of this, I hope um, that that just a, even as a as a work of, of history or uh, environmental politics, it'll be interesting to to get a sense of the UN politics that shaped the governance structures in in the early 1970s. To get a sense of the um, the the competition between Brundtland herself and and her um, and the uh, the deputy uh, chair of the Brundtland Commission. There, I found a set of documents about them basically sniping back and forth and trying to seize control of the commission, and and all of that comes out in the book. And I hope uh, that that readers of it will will enjoy that 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 rich historical aspect of it because the history of global environmental governance is really rich and compelling. Dr. Michael Manulak, we're at the end of of our uh, our discussion, and uh, I wanted to thank you for all the time that you've provided and uh, and all the insights. Uh, it was really a a uh, thought triggering uh, discussion, and and I'm pretty sure that our our followers and listeners will have a lot to benefit from it. Um, I want to thank you for your time once again and congratulate you once again on your recent publication. We are very eager to witness more of your upcoming work and we wish you all the best and we hope to have you again in the near future. Yeah, thank you, Hadi. These are great questions and, and I think really get to, to some of the most important issues facing the, the global community right now. So it's been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you for doing it. Dr. Michael Manulak, Assistant Professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, expert on environmental politics and foreign policy, and fellow and advisor at various prestigious institutions. We wish you all the best. Take care.